You are listening to Himal Interviews, where we bring in reporters, authors, and field specialists to discuss a major issue affecting South Asia today. Dozens of leaders from around the world lining up in one of the hottest countries on the planet in what's expected to be the hottest year on record. A deal has been reached at the Global Climate Conference COP28 in Dubai. After all-night talks, the agreement calls for transitioning away from all fossil fuels. Now that includes coal, oil and gas. We cannot save a burning planet via fire holes of fossil fuels. We must accelerate a just, equitable transition to renewables. The science is clear. The 1.5 degree limit is only possible if we ultimately stop burning all fossil fuels. The 28th Conference of Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, or COP28, ended last week in Dubai after two weeks of negotiations. The Conference of Parties is held every year, where 198 signatories to the convention discuss efforts to limit climate change and adapt to its effects. This year, the main focus was the global stock take or the progress report on the Paris Agreement, which is a crucial, legally binding climate change deal signed by the parties in 2015. For South Asia, the conference was primarily about finding financial assistance for its communities that are facing the worst impacts of climate change and that have the highest adaptation costs from rich countries that are most responsible for climate change. At the end of COP28, countries agreed for the first time to transition away from fossil fuels. Yet, many believe the language of the headline agreement is not strong enough and that it leaves too many loopholes to ensure the delivery of commitments. Another milestone was the establishment of a loss and damage fund to help countries vulnerable to climate change. However, developing countries were also left disappointed by a lack of new financial commitments. Joining us now is Simon Evans, Deputy Editor and Senior Policy Editor at Carbon Brief. Simon covers climate and energy policy and closely followed the negotiations in Dubai through the fortnight. Simon holds a PhD in biochemistry from the University of Bristol and has previously studied chemistry at the University of Oxford. We will also speak to him about his analysis on historical carbon emissions and what they tell us about the impact of colonialism on climate change. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the headline agreement on fossil fuels. For the first time in 28 years since international climate negotiations began, countries have agreed to transition away from fossil fuels. But this is not as strong as a commitment that was hoped for, was it? And in fact, I think even the language got watered down a bit um, as the deal was reached. Yeah, so heading into the, uh, the COP28 summit, there were a very large number of countries, I think it grew to something like 120 countries in the end, that were calling for a, a, an agreement to phase out fossil fuels. Some part of that of, of that group wanted to add the word unabated, meaning, um, you know, uh, fossil fuels without carbon capture and storage. But, but in any case, they wanted phase out as the language on fossil fuels. And ultimately, we got this, this slightly mealy-mouthed kind of transition away from fossil fuels. Ultimately, you know, a lot of this is is kind of wordsmithery, if you like. It, it's kind of arguments over what's actually quite straightforward. If you look at a chart of what needs to happen to fossil fuel use in order to, to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, there's a very dramatic reduction in fossil fuel use 
um, you know, particularly this decade, but, you know, certainly out to 2050, whether you call that transitioning away, phase out, phase down, I'm not sure it really matters. But, uh, you know, the, the, the message that, you know, fossil fuels are the problem here and that we're going to move away from them is, is key. And just on on the, uh, the the language that you mentioned, um, so the final agreement calls on uh, parties to to contribute to global efforts, including transitioning away from fossil fuels. So calls on is is out of all of the the kind of uh, phrases that they could have chosen, that's the weakest in the kind of lexicon of UN legal language. On the other hand, it is stronger than one draft um, on the eleventh of December during the the, the summit where it was even more mealy-mouthed and it, it said, you know, it called on parties to take action that could include, and that that could basically made, made everything that came afterwards completely optional. So they got rid of the could, but they, you know, they still have only calls on and transitioning away, which is, as I, as I mentioned, not as strong as some people had hoped for. Right. 123 countries that pledged to triple their um, renewable energy production capacity by 2030. But a lot of South Asian countries were not included in that group. These were India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, and Afghanistan. Can you explain to us a little bit about the choice that is made in committing to expanding renewables for countries who can't exactly phase down fossil fuels right now? Yeah, so there was quite an interesting moment where where there was this big, big pledge launched with, with as, as you said, you know, 120-something countries signing up. Um, to triple renewable capacity by 2030 and also to double the rate of energy efficiency improvements over that same period. My understanding of, of why some of those major South, South Asian countries didn't sign up is that is that the wording of that pledge also included um, language around phasing down fossil fuels. I think, you know, dis- despite the fact that they didn't sign up to that specific pledge, you know, and actually, after all, that's that's kind of an informal thing, if you like. It's outside of the formal legal uh, UN climate process. But actually, alongside the, the transitioning away from fossil fuels language, the formal COP outcome did also include a pledge for all countries to contribute to, to tripling renewables globally and doubling the rate of energy efficiency globally by 2030. So although although certain countries didn't sign up to the, the kind of the, the sort of voluntary pledge, perhaps because of the fact that it was tied in with with language around around fossil fuels they did all sign up to the you know the consensus agreement out of cop 28 which which has has similar language right on the very first day of cop 28 the parties agreed to an establishment of a loss and damage fund how important is this for developing countries especially those in south asia and where might this fund um, as it stands now where might it be falling short yeah, so I mean, this is you mentioned. It's twenty eight years that we've been having climate summits, and uh, and we finally only now got a mention of the elephant in the room, as it were, in terms of fossil fuels. Um, and you know, it's a, really a similar story for the loss and damage fund. This is something that you know countries in the global south have been pushing for pretty much since the start of of the international climate regime. And it was obviously only last year at COP27 in Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt, where where there was this this finally an agreement to set up a loss and damage fund, in order to help you know countries facing the the, the unavoidable impacts of climate change that we're already experiencing. 
as part of that deal last year, they they said that, that this year at COP28 they would they would operationalize this fund. It's a kind of a, a kind of clunky, ugly word that is one of the various bits of jargon that gets that flies around at the COP. But basically, just means actually start operating, you know, to be created, to have money in it, and to actually start giving money out. And what they agreed at COP twenty eight on the first day was was something that had been negotiated through the course of this year. In fact, there was something called a transitional committee where ahead of COP twenty eight, they'd been negotiating exactly the details of where the fund would sit. Um, and how it would operate, who would have access to it, who should pay into it, and so on, and and that was that was agreed ahead of the COP, but it wasn't guaranteed that that it would be finally signed off. Um, so it was it was perhaps a surprise for many people, you know, seen as a big achievement to get that signed off on the first day. The fact that this fund's now been established, um, that that is a, a big moment, and obviously, as I said, it's something that developing countries have been calling for for you know for decades, and uh, alongside. The agreement on the fund, we immediately saw a bunch of countries, including the hosts, UAE, including Germany, including the EU, even the US, putting in a very small um, sum. But they effectively they you know, kind of got this fund off to a decent start. I think something like seven hundred million dollars has been pledged into into the fund so far. In terms of where where is it falling short? I mean, there are a couple of key points. Firstly, is that that on an interim basis. This fund is going to be housed within the World Bank, and that's something that that you know uh, developing countries were were very keen to avoid. They you know see the World Bank as something that's kind of heavily influenced um, by by the US. Obviously, the US always appoints the president of the World Bank. They were very keen for this fund ultimately to be housed as a, an entity of the the UN climate regime rather than under the World Bank, but. Because that would take a long time to set up, at least in my understanding, they they basically agreed on a compromise, which is that that for four years it would be held by the World Bank, and then after that it, there would be something new set up. The other the other key area, obviously, is is just in terms of the amounts of money. I mean, you know, seven hundred million was a good start. That, that you know that that passed the minimum required for this to be established. So sort of symbolically a, a good step, but obviously pales in in significance compared to the the actual amounts of money that you know that would be needed to to fully address the loss and damage countries are already facing sure and uh, you know to put this into a little more context there have been commitments that have been made in the past that we haven't del- delivered on like the 2009 pledge to provide 100 billion dollars every year in climate finance to help decarbonize developing economies in that context how optimistic are you that something like this loss and damage fund will actually work? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's got off to a good start, I guess you would say. But but as you as you mentioned, you know, this hundred billion dollar pledge has become kind of totemic almost. Um, it's something that was supposed to be met as of twenty twenty. There, you know, that there were the OECD put out a report shortly before COP twenty eight, saying that you know that. The early sort of evidence suggested that it would was met in twenty twenty two, but you know the the kind of detailed information to to prove that that happened wasn't there. So there was even an argument in COP twenty eight about whether to whether to acknowledge that it had been met, and, you know that it had probably been met in twenty twenty two or not. And I think in the end they 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 didn't agree to do that because you know the evident you know the clear evidence on paper wasn't there. But you know obviously that that has been a really big issue in terms of trust in the system because. 
you know developing countries rightly say well well why should we believe that you're going to do what you said you're going to do because you haven't when you haven't delivered on this this key financial pledge i i guess you know we'll, we'll see what happens um with the loss and damage funds you know un- unlike with you know with climate finance more broadly where there's actually a clear obligation on developed countries to to give climate finance this loss and damage fund ha- um it, it doesn't have such strong legal language if you like around around who should pay into it i i think it's that you know developed countries should pay into it and that other countries are encouraged to pay um into it so you know we saw like the uae which isn't um isn't a developed country paying into the fund but effectively no one's obligated to pay money so whether it continues to be you know cap- capitalized and you know to the levels that would, would really be needed for it to make a big difference that remains to be seen right uh, I'd like to move on now to your analysis. Um, you did an, an analysis with your colleagues at Carbon Brief uh, that was published just before COP28. You looked at historical carbon emissions and found that if you take the impact of colonialism and colonial trade and the movement of resources into account, that the burden of responsibility of, for climate change shifts quite radically. Can you first explain to me what made you take up this analysis and um, explain to us the the methodology behind it? So, I mean, I think something that many people don't appreciate is that that there's a direct linear link between the amount of carbon dioxide emitted since the Industrial Revolution um, and the amount of warming that we're experiencing now. And so in that sense, you know, history really matters. And you can you can directly assign responsibility for the 1.3 degrees that we're experiencing today to the countries that emitted the most co2 historically and so previously like a couple of years ago we published analysis where we did just that we added up historical emissions from all countries in the world from fossil fuel use from cement production and from land use change in forestry and, and deforestation and so on and we when we published that a couple of years ago we had quite a bit of pushback from from people saying well hang on a minute you know like you know so countries like india like indonesia featured in the top 10 you know largest contributors to current warming according to that analysis and people said well is that is that really fair because you know both of those countries and many others um were you know subject to colonialism they were under under you know imperial rule from from the uk from the netherlands and so on and surely responsibility for emissions under colonial rule, the argument went, which should be assigned to the colonial power. And we, you know, we thought that was a really interesting question. Um, you know, it was a fair one in many ways, but at the time we we just didn't have the the data that we would have needed to try and do, you know, to look at that. So what we what we've done over the last couple of years was we we tracked down a, an academic database, which basically says for every year and for every country if it was under colonial rule and who who the colonial ruler was and then we we basically combined that with the the data on historical emissions and so for you know for india for example we assigned emissions that took place within what is now india to the uk if that was you know during the period of of colonial rule similarly for you know bangladesh pakistan and so on all of the countries that were colonized part of the British Empire or part of other European empires. And we reassigned all of those emissions, but on the basis that, you know, the, the imperial power had the ultimate decision-making authority and therefore the, you know, the, the ultimate responsibility for what was taking place in those colonized territories. 
And when we did all of that, we added, added it all up. And we saw that, you know, for countries like the UK, for example, its, its contribution to current warming virtually doubled. And it, it rose up the rankings from the eighth largest contributor to, to current warming under the kind of territorial emissions basis to the, something like the fourth highest emitter um, when accounting for emissions under colonial rule. And crucially, in that in that new accounting, um, the UK becomes a, a much larger contributor to current warming than, than India. Right. And, and, and it's a similar picture for the Netherlands and Indonesia, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, the Netherlands is quite, you know, it's quite a small country. And so I think when you look just at the territory of the Netherlands, as, as it is today, if you look at emissions that took place historically, cumulatively over time, just within that territory, it's something like the 35th largest contributor to current warming, um, which is you know pretty small. But once you take into account emissions under, under Dutch colonial rule, primarily in, in Indonesia, then it jumps right up the rankings. I think their total emissions basically triple and it, you know, so that really makes a big difference um, to, to the Netherlands. Um, you know, I think in both cases, you know, the Netherlands and the UK, they are relatively small countries in terms of their current population and in terms of their current emissions. You know, both of those countries have seen, you know, significant declines in their emissions in recent years. But what our analysis really emphasizes is that they have this outsized impact on on where we where we are now in terms of historical responsibility, particularly when you take emissions on the colonial rule into account. So how can an analysis like this factor into climate change talks on the global stage? How should they factor in? Yeah, so so under the international climate regime, uh, you know, under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Paris Agreement, there's already this built-in acknowledgement that developed countries have, have a greater responsibility and they also have you know, greater means in terms of, of money. And therefore, they have firmer obligations, you know, in terms of cutting their own emissions. And they also have obligations in terms of providing climate finance to developing countries to help those countries transition away from fossil fuels, you know, and also adapt to and deal with the consequences of climate change that's already happening now. So in a sense, it, it, it's kind of a reinforcement of that point, you know, that many developed countries have a very large historical responsibility for warming. And, and that in a sense means you know that they you know they have a responsibility to act first and as i said that's already recognized i think what's interesting is that we're seeing that that argument develop a little bit so it it wasn't in the final outcome from cop28 but at one point there was in a draft of the the global stock take text that was being discussed there there was a, an idea which i you know i think was being pushed by countries like like india saying that, that developed countries ought to reach net zero emissions, not by 2050, which is what many of them are targeting, but in fact, by 2040. And then after 2040, to even go net negative, in, in other words, for, for their, their net emissions to, to be below zero. And the argument is that, that that's needed in order to create, I think, what, what India calls carbon space um, for their own development. In other words, the carbon budget for staying below 1.5 degrees is so tiny at this point that um, you know, effectively developed countries largely have used all of that carbon budget up. And so they ought to get to zero as quickly as possible and then go net negative so that that creates more carbon space, if you like, for, for, for developing countries to, to bring you know, their populations out of poverty and, and, and to develop their, their economies, their cities and so on. And now that COP28 is over, uh, what can we expect next on international climate negotiations? 
Yeah, so I mean, the the show rolls rolls on. We've got COP twenty nine next year now in in Azerbaijan. I mean, one of the things that that was quite notable about the COP twenty eight outcome was, you know, despite having those commitments on transitioning away from fossil fuels, renewables, and so on, in terms of finance, um, the outcome was pretty threadbare. And you know, arguably, had there been more movement in terms of of signals on on climate finance for developing countries, there could have perhaps been greater ambition on on in terms of you know fossil fuels and you know other mitigation aspects. But I think the reason that we didn't see that basically is because we, you know we've got the hundred billion target which remains in place for now. But under the Paris Agreement, there's also an agreement that that from 2025 there will be a new climate finance target, which will be you know, higher than 100 billion. And that's not due to be agreed until COP29 next year. So that's really going to be probably the biggest topic of discussions at, at COP29. And I think that, you know, at COP28, uh, you know, many developed countries in particular didn't want to preempt that decision by by putting more details into into the, the COP28 outcome around finance because they said, oh, well, that's that's not to be decided until next year. I mean, in, in a way, that timing was unfortunate because it meant that, you know, developing countries were saying, well, how are we going to implement all of this, this increased ambition, you know, if we don't have some sort of means of implementation? In other words, finance, access to technology and so on. So, you know, that that's going to be the big fight next year and we'll be watching it closely for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, is there a book or a podcast or something to watch that you would recommend to our listeners uh, to understand the current state of the politics around climate change? Well, that's a very good question. I, I don't have one off the top of my head, but for those that um, obviously Carbon Breeze published a detailed summary of the COP28 outcome, including all of the, you know, the, the various political fights around, around you know, fossil fuels, um, loss and damage, finance and so on. Um, but it, but for a kind of a short version of that of that summary, people could watch a recording of the webinar that we that we did on on Friday. That's available on our website, and you know it's just an hour an hour long kind of digest of all of the key debates um, in Dubai. But the thing that I read recently, which is which was super 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 interesting, was um, it's called Environment and Empire. Um, it's published by by Oxford University. And this, this is something that informed my my reporting on the, the colonial emissions analysis. And it's basically um, you know, a fascinating account of, of the ways in which colonialism and environment were kind of closely intertwined. So, you know, particularly in somewhere like South Asia, where, you know, the, the colonial power, of, you know, the British colonial power were using the natural resources of, of South Asia firstly to send back to you know to their industry at home but also to project and to to strengthen their power in the region you know so using um you know native forests in in south asia to build railways to project their their military might using teak forests from Burma, you know myanmar to, to to build navy frigates again to you know to strengthen their their, their power in the region and so somehow you know it's in a way that i hadn't truly appreciated before um, these issues, I think, are, are much more intertwined than people, you know, than many people realise. Simon, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you want to help us bring you more updates and stories, you can sign up for membership at www.himalmag.com/membership. We've got a range of membership plans for you to choose from. You'll get access to our archival newsletter specially curated for you and even Himal's iconic right side up map with its startling new perspective on South Asia. And if you don't want to miss out on future episodes, head to the link in our notes to sign up for our newsletter which will bring you the updates right to your mailboxes every fortnight. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or wherever it is that you like to listen to your favorite podcasts. And that's it for today and for this episode. See you next time.